We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Happy Monday morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Buffalo What's Next. I'm Lorenzo Rodriguez with you today, and with me here today is Nicholas Ramirez, attorney. Uh, He's with the Legal Aid Bureau of Buffalo and and primarily specializing in civil rights, civil reentry, formerly of the Criminal Defense Unit with the Legal Aid Bureau. Uh, But Nick, welcome. Welcome to Buffalo What's Next. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on this uh, soggy July 3rd morning here, uh, but uh, and, and pre-July 4th Monday. But um, I wanted to have you on for some time now because uh, you are a man who knows uh, a, a number of, of, of things when, when it pertains to criminal defense, with civil rights, civil, civil, uh, social justice reform. Uh, we're going to delve into a number of topics here. You... You kind of do this in one way or another with your Know Your Rights panel through the uh, Legal Aid Bureau. Uh, we'll get to that as well. But uh, you're you're all about educating and hopefully filling in those 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 cracks, those gaps in, in our in our legal knowledge base. <laughs> uh, you're the JD. We're just we're just sometimes uh, caught up in 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 legal uh, cases and and thankfully there 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 are folks like you at the Legal Aid Bureau that are that are helping us to uh, make sense of all this and. Along with this, we're going to try to make sense in some of the uh, the big monumental court cases that the Supreme Court just recently uh, ruled on. Uh, we had a lot of things to get to here, but uh, Nick, first and foremost, the Legal Aid Bureau of Buffalo. Uh, what exactly is it that you do there at, at the at the bureau? Yeah, uh, so I am the civil reentry attorney. Um, so. People who have had interactions with the criminal justice system, um, some of them incarcerated or some of them simply, you know, dealing with uh, collateral consequences, uh, they're referred to me or I talk to them and we try to find options to help them, uh, you know, clear up their record if we can or, you know, get back on their feet. Uh, Just generally make it so that, you know, this interaction doesn't ruin their life and, you know, lead them to circumstances that can lead to another interaction. We are um, going to get to the, the the Clean Slate Act, which is uh, a a big uh, big a big but there's a big push for it to pass. It's I think it's it's about to uh, all it needs is just the governor Governor Hochul's signature. But we'll get into that in just a minute. But what I was surprised in in my research before this interview is that one in three. New Yorkers have had contact with the criminal punishment at some point or another, with the criminal criminal punishment system at one point or another. That's a that's quite a staggering number, and and that I guess um, getting a little ahead of ourselves here. But with with when it comes to that, with any kind of uh, conviction, 
it, it could be any anywhere. It's usually felonies that we're we're talking about, but also misdemeanors. You can also see some jail time as well, or you can okay. um, misdemeanors depending on you know if it's an A or a B. You know, you can look on be looking it up to a year. So that's one of the things that you do with the Legal Aid Bureau of Buffalo, along with with criminal defense or defense of the accused and incarcerated, uh, which you all are, are, if I'm not mistaken, the largest provider of those said services in Western New York. Correct. I believe that's correct. Yeah. That also includes any appeals that come that stem from that afterwards. Yep. Appeals, post convictions. Um... Post-conviction motions, uh, which are very similar to appeals, but tend to be a little different. Uh, if you're ending up in Buffalo City Court, more likely than not, one of our people from our office is representing you. And as well as, as those those services, you've also the aforementioned reentry project, which we'll get into more detail shortly. Uh, education, litigation, attorneys for children. I know that's that's huge now with uh, the the increase in suspensions and, and, mm-hmm. and the litigation that stems from that, housing rights, family stability, workers' rights, consumer rights, immigrant and refugees. Uh, you're not immigration law. Uh, that's not your specialization, but uh, it's good to see that, that the Legal Aid Bureau tackles that because we got a rising number of immigrants in this, in this area that are seeking asylum and, and caught up in that, in that legal uh, fight of, of trying to get of seek asylum here. So uh, have you seen an increase in in those case, in that caseload? I assume so. Um, I have seen the increase, but it's not in our office necessarily. Our immigration unit does a lot of different things, mm-hmm. um, which a lot of respect for Sophie Feel and Brittany Triggs, who pretty much are that unit. Um, brilliant women, brilliant attorneys. Uh, a lot of times what we're dealing with is people with immigration issues who have found themselves intersecting with our criminal justice system. So... Someone gets arrested who isn't a natural-born citizen. Um, our public defenders refer them to the immigration unit so we can make sure that whatever's happening on the criminal side is, you know, the best possible outcome considering those additional concerns. Gotcha. And uh, as of as of as I mentioned before, one of the services you're providing is the ongoing Know Your Rights sessions. Mm-hmm. What's the kind of information that you're imparting on attendees at, at those? And what is the Know Your Rights uh, initiative that, that you have? Yeah. Uh, so Know Your Rights, it's a collaboration. It kind of came from me working with Sam White, our uh, president of the Minority Bar yep. Association. She's. I'm also in the Minority Bar Association. I co-chair the Criminal Justice Reform Task Force. Fellow Puerto Rican as well. Mm-hmm. Samantha yep. as well. I, I'm Cuban, so we're, we're the part of the, co- the Caribbean Coalition. <laughs> but. Uh, and uh, Drew Friedberg, uh, they are at... Uh, neighborhood legal services. Okay. So the three of us, and they're with National Lawyers Guild. So it's all four of those organizations. And basically, we're trying to present people in communities, uh, the east side, the west side of Buffalo, and everywhere else, if they want, you know, to come in and find out how the system works and a better idea of how we work with them to protect their rights. So example is in the criminal justice system, people know that they have, you know, the right to not be searched. Uh, but people don't know what that means. They think maybe they can physically stop the officer from doing it. So the goal of our talk was to say, you can't physically stop them. Mm-hmm. If they're going to do it, despite you saying you don't want them to or saying nothing, and then this aside, they're going to search you anyways. Don't physically stop them. That's going to put you in danger. That can get you hurt. And I don't want to see that happen. What you're, What's going to happen is you're going to work with your attorney after you're arrested to say anything they found they shouldn't have. 
because they weren't allowed to do that. So instead of framing Improper it as a search and seizure, exactly. Basically. So instead of framing it as a defense in the moment that it happens, we're trying to give them the context to understand mm -hmm. that it's something we come back to later. So that way people are safe, their rights protected, and then we can work with them to enforce that right. And uh, are, what other, what are, what would you say are the, the biggest misconceptions? You've had a few of those sessions already now They're, each of them are dealing with and pertaining to a new topic. Uh, right or new subject area what are you seeing though is one of the biggest pre or, or pre misconceptions that, that that folks are coming in with hmm. um i guess the biggest misconception or most common one i'll say is that there are magic words that will prevent the police from violating your rights um that i want to talk to my lawyer exactly um now it doesn't prevent them from doing it. Mm -hmm. It just gives us the ability to do something about it later. Um, you know, when I had that question after we went through the presentation, I had a person who asked, you know, well, like, is there anything we can say in that moment to stop it? And I sadly had to tell her, no, if they're intent on, you know, running roughshod over your rights as a person, they can do it. This is all so we can help you later. And that broke my heart to say that because it shouldn't be that way. Right. But it is. I wanted to be honest. And I think that was the most common misconception because people have this idea of how the law should work from what we're taught in school. And unfortunately, it's not the reality of it. The law is changing. It's constantly changing. We'll, we're going to see that if we haven't already. Uh, it's changing day by day. And, and I guess, as you, you're saying, the, the best thing you can do is just know what's available, what has changed, and and hopefully let your let your your legal representation do the talking and 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 clean everything up afterwards, but uh, I do just want to clarify yeah. um cuz I think that is the other misconception. Um, you know, let your legal your attorney do the talking. Now you should do that in court, obviously. That's mm -hmm. that's always the best move. But I do want to alter the framing of it where it's not that you're letting your lawyer do the talking. You're working with your lawyer so that they can do their part. Um, I always try to convey to my clients that we're a part, we're partners. Mm -hmm. I'm not your boss. I'm doing, we're trying to reach your goals and we're working as a team because I think it's important for people to have that agency when they're involved in these situations. Um, so, you know, that's the only thing I'd say is it's, you know, not about letting your lawyer do the work. It's about working with your right. lawyer. Working, providing, knowing something right out before that, that, that relationship forms and, and then the, that back and forth is, is I would I haven't been there yet, but I would assume that it's it's vital in a uh, uh, client uh, attorney uh, relationship. I'm I'm speaking with Nicholas Ramirez from the civil from the Legal Aid Bureau of Buffalo. We're talking all sorts of laws, but mainly uh, civil rights, civil reentry. Uh, there's a there's a, a portion a project that you're uh, firmly attached to, which is the reentry project from the, uh, the Legal Aid Bureau of Buffalo. What, uh, what's, that, what's that program all about? So that program is basically anything I can fit into it that is going to help people um, reacclimate or come out on the other end of the criminal justice system in a not bad place. Um, I've had clients who had no jail time but their licenses were taken, so we work with them to help, you know, figure out how to get their license reinstated. Um, 
a lot of my work is involving sealing and expungement, so marijuana convictions, because of some recent changes in the law, we can get those expunged from mm -hmm. your record sometimes. Sealing, so I'm going back through your record to see you know, where we can maybe seal a conviction for certain things so that doesn't show up in most general background searches. Mm -hmm. um, I also work with a lot of different partners. Um, uh, Catherine Grange at Jericho House. I've uh, worked with her to work with Catherine. Yep. Yeah. So basically, I refer clients who need services like inpatient treatment, housing to her. Um, she's also, you know, clients she gets that are more fitted for my program. She's rec she's gonna recommend them to me. Um, I also put them in contact with different job training programs, employers. In fact, there's uh, several groups that I'm working out the details with so that people going through their training programs are simultaneously working with me to get their records sealed or expunged or certificate of relief from disabilities, basically saying, like, these things are there, but you can still do this job, mm -hmm. while they go through the training program so that when they finish it, their record's set, they can get their license, they can go straight into the workforce from that training program. So anything I can think of to fit there, I will. Uh, oh, I, we've also uh, helping people contact organizations that deal with police accountability or law enforcement accountability, mm -hmm. um, helping people uh, file complaints with the New York State Division of Human Rights if they're discriminating against an employment. What were some of those groups that, that they, you work with on the on the police accountability, uh, police accountability side? Yeah. Um, so we refer them to private attorneys if necessary. Um, but a lot of it is me collecting data to collecting their information and sending it over to state AG's office, which has mm. instituted a uh, group to oversee those kinds of complaints, um, directing them to the proper administrative process for filing a complaint if they feel that they've been harmed or the person didn't do their job as they should have. Um, you know, I don't want to make it seem like we're going after law enforcement in general. Right. It's more about making people, letting people know what the process is and helping them get in contact with people who can help them through that process. And I'm, I'm curious, so we're going to get into the Clean Slate Act that I mentioned off the top, but uh, the, the, I know with, with the, now the, the new laws pertaining to marijuana uh, dispensaries and, and use in New York State, that's a big, big thing because we have so many prior mm -hmm. convictions. Uh, how is that, how is that un unfolding now in, in your, that you're seeing? Is, are, is it, are we being successful in trying to help or getting enough folks uh, having that a sponge from their records is that changing? Are they just is this an unfortunate turn of events that they can't write at this point? Or what's what's the status of, of individuals facing those types of of, of uh, convictions? What I'm generally seeing is that the process to get those expunged is pretty straightforward. Um, we haven't been getting a lot of pushback on people trying to get them expunged for most cases. Uh, some cases might be a little different um, if they're, you know, the previous charge was a part of how their sentence was determined for something else that was unrelated to it. Um, you know, we might have a little more trouble there. I hesitate to say it's a success or not a success just because, you know, every individual is being affected differently by it. Mm -hmm. And for some of them, it, it you know, it won't give them the best assistance that they could. And for some people, it's a total life changer. Um, I will say though, that as far as I've seen, as far as my 
uh, efforts, the people I've helped, it's been a pretty straightforward process for the most part. And uh, it's one of those places that we really do have to get creative with lawyering sometimes if it's <laughs> related to their sentence. And we have to say, like, listen, you know, you sentenced them on something more serious, but, you know, this really shouldn't have affected it. And that stays on there unless you do anything about it. Those those convictions, misdemeanors for the most part, I, I assume, or, or felony um, possession? A lot, well, a lot of them were felonies at one point. And part of what we are doing is going back and seeing that they've been reduced to misdemeanors. Mm. And that's part of what the law, the changes in the law did. It made it so that things, you know, you could argue that they weren't a crime anymore. Or you could show that they weren't, were no longer a felony or, you know, a higher class of misdemeanor. And say that they should have been reduced to this. And so I've all the cases I've seen, I think I've only had one or two that were misdemeanors originally. They were all felonies. Right. Um, okay. But they were felonies from, you know, the war on drugs, meaning that now they're like, at worst, a B misdemeanor, which is the lowest level of misdemeanor. Or even a violation, which the is not even a crime. which seems so far away. The, the Bush years. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we, we've come a long way since that, uh, but it, but we're still, like we said, things are changing. I'm, I'm glad to see that there's some understanding there, uh, because, uh, you got a lot of, a lot of, I'm sure you've seen a lot of, uh, clients, a lot of individuals that, uh, this is a albatross that just hangs mm -hmm. with them for, for years upon end. And this is kind of a cyclical, uh, situation where you're back in the, in the, in the, the jailing system. Cause you have, you can't really go into straight line of work. Uh, almost, uh, and then once, if and if and when you do get convicted, you go to a, the holding center down here in, in downtown Buffalo or the the Alden Correctional Facility. Which now, another another uh, conversation that we're having here in Buffalo is the the new jail, the proposed jail, something along the lines of like two hundred fifty million dollars to be built in. Uh, I think up up until the other day, the, the, the proposed site has been the Buffalo Grand Hotel, uh, our neighbors down here in downtown Buffalo. Uh, but we've got the correctional facility, not too, not too, I'm sorry, the holding center, not too far down the road. Uh, the city hall, uh, city courts, and all, all conveniently placed. But uh, what are the, the concerns that you're seeing? We've had on Monica Lynch, who's a firm advocate for No New Jail, um, what are you what are you seeing with current uh, jailing conditions and and with this new proposed one down here in, in downtown Buffalo? Well, uh, so I've been dealing with conditions in the in the jails since I was a law student. Um, I actually the civil rights clinic at the law school we uh, sued for records regarding the thirty four people who had died in there under former sheriff Howard's watch and. You know, I was part of that litigation. I argued the appeal that we won against them. Um, and that I spent two years of law school in that project. And I've continued in that sphere, I guess, a little bit since I graduated. Uh, props to Heather Abraham, Mike Higgins for getting me started in that. Um, I think some of the concerns are, I was trying to think of how to phrase this last night. It's, to me, it's like moving to a new house because your current house is dirty. Mm -hmm. Um so, yes, a new jail, you're going to have, you know, less rodents, bugs, um, probably better, you know, uh, structure. Uh, things aren't won't be falling apart as much. There's been huge water issues in the current mm -hmm. facility. 
Um, you know, you're going to have all of those things, just like if you move to a new house because it was your old house was dirty, it's going to be nice and clean when you move in. But that doesn't address the problems that led to this place becoming like that. Um, so some of the concerns that we've had uh, from various members of the Minority Bar Association of Western New York's Criminal Justice Reform Task Force are things like um, concerns about officer training in these facilities. You know, they're, are they being trained to handle medical crises and mm -hmm. recognize red flags for self-harm? Because that was, you know, what happened to now 36 people that have died in the jails. Um, are they training them to recognize their own uh, racial issues? Um, you know, I, ha I've gone to the jails. Um, I can say that the guards have largely been nothing but polite and nice to me. But at the same time, I have seen people who work in those facilities who have white supremacist tattoos. And, you know, if you're a person of color, which is largely the people who are in those facilities, um, do you, can you possibly feel safe when you're, the people responsible for your safety are have those things? Um, so those are some concerns. I think there's additional concerns with how much money we're putting into this new facility when that money could be used to fix the current facility and pay for training mm -hmm. for guards and put them in a better position to, you know, work with help the people that are in there. Um, could we use that money to repair the facility uh, and just, you know, that way we've still got the two, but they're both in, you know, better upkeep. Mm -hmm. um, condensing the jails to one location while the people who are in those facilities, you know, they're not all from one location. You know, um, with the facility downtown, you have people who their families and friends, their lawyers can come see them pretty easily. Um, or not easily, but they can take a bus. Right. They can take an Uber or something there, like there's that. A, I know that yeah. there's a big transportation concern yeah. currently. Yeah. This would help alleviate it, but... I don't think it would. You know? Because either way, you're going to have people move from one facility to another. And, yeah. you know, one facility, they're going to have people that are local to that area put into a different location. And so this would be a county jail, so... Yeah. You're, you're getting folks from, from all throughout Erie and Buffalo, uh, Buffalo proper. Um, I'm speaking with Nicholas Ramirez, uh, civil rights, civil reentry attorney with the Legal Aid Bureau of Buffalo. And um, another component of this is we kind of touched on it prior to the, the jail discussion, uh, the Clean Slate Act. It's mm -hmm. a... It's been well. It's, it's gained as much steam as it needs. It passed the state senate, and uh, it's only waiting upon Governor Hochul's signature to become uh, law. Uh, what do you see? Do you foresee uh, an obstacle to it? Um, I know that Hochul's made some comments that she's a little hesitant because it doesn't. You know, there, there's some concerns she had regarding certain acts, um, but it definitely seems like she's come to the point where she's gonna sign it mm -hmm. she's just you know being cautious uh knock on wood you know <laughs> um hopefully that'll get signed though i think that's going to be a benefit to a lot of people and and just to kind of for those that are not aware of what it entails 
What is the Clean Slate Act? So the Clean Slate Act is it's essentially going to take away a lot of work from me, which is uh, um, <laughs> that's a good thing in this I, case. I'm, I'm happy it for like it. it. <laughs> so uh, rather than having to get someone to file a motion with the court to have your record sealed for certain things, it would just automatically seal them after a certain period of time. So if it's a misdemeanor, most misdemeanors, it'll be three years, most felonies, eight years. There are exceptions. Um, I know that one of the big ones is uh, sexual crimes, um, which have their whole separate, you know, issues that you need to resolve. Um, is that currently in this the version of the act? That's currently exempt. Okay. Because of its nature. Yep. yep. Yeah. But uh, there, and there are there are exceptions also for uh, immigration, which uh, at first I was like, well, why? But then one of our, again, Brittany Triggs from our office explained to me, she was like, well, no, you don't, you don't want to seal those because you want the attorney for them and their immigration proceedings to see it. And, you know, then I have other options available mm -hmm. for them. So uh, overall, it, it looks like the bill is a net benefit. Um, I think that there's more we can do, but. At this point, I think it's going to be huge for anyone who's still got that, you know, felony. I've got clients who have felonies from 20 years ago, from when they were teenagers, doing things that teenagers do when they're mm -hmm. impulsive. And to just have this gone without needing to go through all of the work with me to get it gone, I think it would just be a huge relief for them. So it would pretty much be an automatic trigger yep. process where you already start going into the espongement well, you go to the ceiling automatically, yeah. Expungement means it never happens. Ceiling just means that it's it's there, but you can't see it except certain conditions. Do you notice that there's an abundance of folks that don't know that this that th these options are available? Oh yes, um, I uh, I do a, a lot of outreach events, mm -hmm. and I do them because a lot of people don't realize these are available. Um, so whenever I'm at these events talking to people at a table and they mention something to me and I can tell them like, actually, no, you can get that sealed. Uh, go to this website, apply for my office or call me and I'll help you with the process of applying for our help and let's get that taken care of. I picked up five different people last week from Meriwether Library mm -hmm. um, who didn't had no idea that we could do these kinds of things to help them. Um, and they were struggling to find work. They were struggling to maintain it, their housing. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the automatic is going to be a huge help. And also it's retroactive. So it'll go back for anyone who would have qualified before it was put in place. It'll automatically apply to them, too. Um, I believe it's a 120-day timeline that they have to get everything set when it goes into effect. And after that, you have a civil cause of action to sue if they don't do it. So, Is, it, do you have to, is there any action that has to be done if this were to already get signed into into law, do we? Is there a process that needs to be done, or is it just automatic? Just basically? automatic. Um, as soon as it gets signed into law, basically, the different courts start going to work, sealing records, and you know, putting people in a better position than they were. And uh, one question that that that's been that that's been lingering because I've spoken to some fellow attorneys that. Uh, are in the immigration side of things. And the biggest concern there is just the, the, the caseload mm. uh, is, are you seeing that that is also an issue in, in the criminal defense uh, world? Is that, is that also as mounting as, as there's a lot of, for them, it's been just a, a lot of slow moving mm. cases. Uh, we had Gretchen Gonzalez from the volunteer lawyers project not too long ago. And the big thing for her is she's still trying to get um, Afghani refugees uh, asylum here in, in the states, and that was December of 2021 when they fled yeah. uh, the the uh, Afghanistan. We saw those pictures in, in the news. 
but are you seeing the same as far as, as just an abundance of, of work and not enough bodies to go around to tackling them in the criminal side? Um, so I would say it's nowhere near what uh, immigration attorneys may be dealing with, considering that they have uh, federal laws that they have to deal with and federal tends to move you know, slower, have a lot more nuance and a lot of different areas you have to know. So uh, props to anyone doing that work. Um, I will say that when I was in CDU, it, it could depend because, you know, depends on how many people are being called in that day. Um, I personally felt it was manageable, but also very stressful and could lead to some very heartbreaking circumstances. Mm. I'm not going to deny having one or two clients that I may have uh, cried a little bit after I felt like I let them down. Um, and I, this is what I've seen from my colleagues as well. Like they, I, I mean, they all work extremely hard to keep their caseloads managed and up and make sure that they're communicating with people as often as possible and uh, dealing with the just the overall stressors. So I'd say caseload number-wise, uh, it might be higher. Our cases are a little more streamlined in a lot of ways, but I don't think they're any less emotionally devastating when you can't help the person. Uh, well, we are going to continue, unfortunately, in, in, in that the same vein with our, our second half of our conversation, uh, but we're going to take a quick break. Before that, I uh, just want to remind everyone I'm speaking with Nicholas Ramirez, attorney for the Legal Aid Bureau of Buffalo. We're going to get into something that affected us on a national level, will affect us locally. We're very much a local show, but it, it's going to have it's it's going to it's going to show itself out here in Buffalo. Uh, the Supreme Court rulings of last week. We'll get to those in just a minute after our break here on Buffalo What's Next. Please stay with us. Yo, I'm Crespo. Spend your Friday and Saturday nights with me on WBFO The Bridge. I make you want to dance. I make you want to shake your thing. You know what I mean? Come on up. Let's go. Let's go. Listen to Crespo Beats on WBFO The Bridge Fridays and Saturdays at 7 p.m. Listen to Morning Edition with your local host, Jay Moran. Weekdays from 6 to 10 a.m. on WBFO, your NPR station. Not sure what you want to watch tonight? We've got you covered. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule to see what's on WNED-PBS, WNED-Create, and WNED-PBS Kids. Click the Primetime button to see what's on tonight. You can also search for your favorite programs in the search bar or look for programs by date and time. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule and start making your viewing plans now. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Welcome back to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Lorenzo Rodriguez, joined by Nicholas Ramirez, an attorney with the Legal Aid Bureau of Buffalo, uh, doing a number of, of great things with the uh, prior with the Criminal Defense Unit, now uh, in, in, a, in the civil reentry project portion of, of, of what the, the Bureau is doing but also informing, educating, uh, helping helping break down the, the convoluted world of legal uh, 
law uh, and, and just making it simpler for, for simpler minds like myself. Uh, Nick, thank you for once again for joining us. We, we were talking uh, the local aspect of, of things, uh, the, the reentry project that you're, you're associated with, the Clean Slate Act of New York that's right, up, right there on, on Governor Hochul's desk ready to be passed. Uh, but now let's, let's go a little bit wider scope here. Uh, if you've been listening to the news as of late, there's been just the, the, the SCOTUS has been busy. The Supreme Court of the United States has been very busy uh, setting back, wiping clean decades of precedents that we had uh, prior to this past week. And we'll, we'll get to them in each in, in, in detail or one, one way or another. But uh, well, what was your feeling right off the bat after after just it felt like it was one hit after the other? Bam, 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 bam. We had we have the affirmative action ruling. We had the the the, the um, creative uh, the 303 creative versus Alanis uh, discrimination or the freedom speech First Amendment uh, case, and then we had the loan debt forgiveness ruling as well. What were your thoughts after all those concurrent rulings came by? Uh, so a lot of disappointment. Um, when I went to law school, I actually uh, dreamed of one day being someone who argued in front of the Supreme Court. Um, I, you know, always tried to give uh, benefit of the doubt mm -hmm. to opinions I didn't agree with, um, to justices I didn't agree with, because I believed a lot of them were acting in good faith and trying to reach the just outcome. Uh, but I think a lot of us who felt that way one L year of law school kind of evolved in our belief. And I think that that hit me particularly hard with some of the cases in the last few years. And th this term was no exception lump that in also i i can't gloss over at the roe v wade re, uh decision yep. dobbs uh, dobbs it just and even i was speaking with um a gentleman last week about uh the the 303 creative case and we were awaiting the the ruling on that uh i was i i said to myself i thought we had been over this one already with the the colorado cake maker uh and 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 yet this we'll, we'll we'll get into. Uh, I mean, oh well, you know what? Let's let's start with that one because, yeah. uh, to my knowledge, uh, we had already kind of gone over the, the the right to refuse business based on 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 religious beliefs or free speech grounds. Uh, this was three hundred three Creative LLC versus Alenis, and it was a six to three in favor of three hundred three. Uh, Christian web designer Lori Smith. From Colorado, refused to do business. Now, I, I want your, your 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 expertise here because, to my knowledge, this was a hypothetical that was mm -hmm. that was argued here. She refused to do business with LGBTQ plus uh, clientele based on on her religious beliefs, freedom speech grounds. How, can that you can do that? You can have a fictitious <laughs> um, litigant. Uh, well, kind of addressing that first point. No, uh, it's called an advisory opinion. Um, and generally in federal courts, you cannot seek an advisory opinion. Um, it, it's it's because the courts have a limited power, um, or at least they're supposed to have a very limited power to determine case and controversies. And I think it's really important to look at the hypothetical here, because I think it kind of informs uh, a lot of the problems with the decision. So uh, 303 Creative, it did kind of follow up on Masterpiece Cake Shop. Mm -hmm. um, Masterpiece Cake Shop, the court didn't decide these, the merits, really, of whether or not the 
you know, cake decorator had this right, they really just kind of kicked it back saying, oh, well, the, you know, Colorado board made some comments about religion that uh, show, you know, maybe he didn't get a fair hearing. So, you know, do the hearing again, give him a fair hearing. Um, a lot of us at the time felt like that was really just the court trying to avoid the hard question because mm -hmm. of a lot, just the circumstance of it. But, you know, we took it for what it was. Uh, 303 Creative, and this is the problem with uh, advisory opinion when you're talking hypotheticals, you don't have any facts to really look at to determine it. Um, so you see this a lot in the opinion where you have Justice Gorsuch um, really you know, talking about this in the broadest terms of, oh, well, it's a message she doesn't agree with. And uh, this is an individual, you know, piece of art and such. Well, we don't know that. We don't know what the process actually is for designing the websites because she's never done it. She's never mm -hmm. designed a wedding website, period. Um, and, you know, we also see this in Justice Sotomayor's uh, dissent where she's pointing to all the hypotheticals because she's like, we don't we don't have anything to really root right. this in. And basically, you, go, go on, you're, yeah. you're suing the, the law. You're, yeah. you're 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 trying to make it or absolve or get rid of the law so as to be able to then claim that you don't have to do business with said parties more you're trying to make an exception that pretty much anyone can use now because we don't have solid facts so um i think it was really demonstrative during the oral argument justice jackson referred to um you know a santa scene set in the 1950s well could they say a black child can't be in it because you know, that's not part of their classic vision of, mm -hmm. you know, it's a wonderful life. Um, and, you know, it's like, how do you answer that considering this context? Um, and I think that's the, one of the first problems you see with this decision is all these hypotheticals. There's no solid facts to root this in. It's also demonstrates the a lot of the justices don't seem to have a firm grasp on discrimination law. Mm -hmm. um, because in oral argument, you saw Justice Alito ask, well, would a black Santa be able to refuse to take pictures with a kid dressed in a KKK outfit? Well, wearing a KKK outfit isn't a protected class. It's very right. different from your skin color. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't think anyone disputes that. Um, and that's a lot of what you're seeing to justify the decision now is like, well, you know, uh, you guys don't have to make cakes for MAGA people. And it's like, well, no, you never had to. Uh, this was purely about a person's, you know, person. Do you think we'll go in that route? I think it's inevitable because they didn't draw a line. They couldn't draw a line for between race and, you know, being gay or being trans. You There's a reason you can't draw a line because those are all parts of who you are. And that's where we've understood a protected class to come from. So the decision doesn't even try to draw a line there. I think it's because to the justices and it may seem obvious like no that's that's obviously different um you know refusing to bake a cake for a black couple or an interracial couple it's obviously different than try baking a cake for a gay couple or designing a website for a gay couple is different from interracial or black couple but how i can't think of an answer to that i don't think that they could either and i think that's why it's absent in the opinion there's so much to, to delve into here uh, but we have two other Monumental cases to the rulings, rather. Uh, first, let's do the the, the, the fiscal side, uh, the loan debt for, the loan debt forgiveness ruling. Now, it's to my understanding that that President Biden's going to try to fight this in one way or another using the 1965 Higher Learning Act, but he's got a long way a road ahead once again. Uh, thoughts on this one? Um, 
this is one that really showed bad faith on the justice part, in my opinion, um, because there was no injury here. So they, they took this argument from the state that the state had created this independent company to handle learn, student loan servicing, and that company might lose money, which would, you know, make them unable to pay the state. It's it's all speculation, for mm -hmm. one. And two, the company itself said, no, we actually profit from this decision. This company refused to get involved. Um, and especially because I come from the criminal defense side, where the police could get an illegal confession from someone else and use it against you. They just can't use it against that person. Right. And now the state can go go and say, well, we're going to you know, try to enforce this group's rights and that group's like, what, what rights? I'm good. I'm not in this. Like, right. yo, you're not making, I'm not having this fight. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I'm going to get more money from that, this. I don't what? want the smoke. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it, the fact that the justices did this really twisty, turny way to find standing in itself bothered me. Um, was it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, was this Supreme Court taking this on uh, themselves or did it start in a federal circuit? So the Supreme Court doesn't take courts as a, an original jurisdiction um, with very limited, ex you know, uh, exceptions to that. Usually they're a court of appeals. Um, and this came from a lower court that had, you know, enjoined this policy. Um, and it's it, the, the whole thing was just kind of a mess. It also included what's called the major questions doctrine, where Congress is supposed to speak clearly about what it wants. I, yeah, done. I saw that. What, yeah. what, 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 what? Can you explain that a little bit in detail? Yeah. So I guess the major questions doctrine means um, if it's a question of great political or economic significance, Congress has to speak explicitly. So I think in this case, and I guess the idea would be if Congress wanted the president to be able to forgive student loans in the sense of COVID, then Congress would pass a law saying that the president can forgive student loans because of COVID. Um, problem with that is that we pass laws with broad language intentionally to allow, you know, a quicker response. Um, also, okay, maybe you can estimate economic, I guess. I don't, I don't really think that's the place for the court, but fine, whatever. But how do you estimate political significance? Because you can make any issue political. I mean, right. years well, ago, who would have seen that yeah. now in one way or another, <laughs> who would have thought that the electoral college decision would be <laughs> politically controversial, <laughs> Uh, so, you know, the whole thing was just this very swishy, washy and un, undeterminate, indeterminable standards, kind of similar to some of the things that were raised with affirmative action. Um, and so that's that that really frustrates me that it's it's very clear that this was just an outcome driven result meant to stop this this administration from doing something. And then there was the other. I guess, uh, double whammy, uh, the affirmative action ruling. Mm -hmm. uh, now, basically, uh, universities can no longer consider race when accepting new students, or at least not, they're not obligated to do so. Affirmative action had been this 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 piece of legislation back in the 70s, I believe, that mm -hmm. we, we, we got it on the books. And then now it no longer is a criteria for uh, new uh, secondary, post-secondary uh, school, uh, school students. But... Uh, this one, there was a lot more. There was it was it, it, was, it seemed to me from the general criticism I've heard, it's very still very much unclear that the schools can still continue to practice looking at race, but it's not an obligation. Well, it's never been an obligation. I, um, I think that's the first thing to clarify. 
schools were allowed to do so. And in some states, they actually banned its use, period. They banned use of race, period. Um, those states were especially instructive because once they banned consideration of race, period, they saw a sharp decrease mm -hmm. in you know students of color. Um, and that's not just you know black students, that's Latino students, that's you know, um, Asian students. So it, it was never a mandate. It was always a policy that was used to try and diversify the student body. Just to give some equity where, where it was needed. Uh, well, I mean, that might be one way to phrase it. Um, the courts, you know, have gone through a couple different things that you were allowed to do it for. At one point, you could look to remedying history, but you couldn't look to that anymore. Um, most recently, it's been you can use it to build a diverse student base because that benefits everyone. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's it's always had this. It never wanted to acknowledge what it was. Um, you know, we never, the court never really wanted it to be acknowledging that people from those groups had been set back by who they were. So, you know, they wanted it to have something else, which was this, eventually settled on this diversity of a student body. Um, but now they can't consider them in the holistic approach that they normally take. So normally, and Roberts lays this out even in his opinion, which is why it's so strange to me that he phrases this as uh, completely determinative. But there's basically like five steps to the process that mm -hmm. start with like your, you know, your grades and scores and they whittle it down, they whittle it down, they whittle it down. Then they have like, okay, we are definitely admitting these students. And then there's like, okay, we got these slots left. And this, this is a whole huge process. So let's say they've got 500 spots left out of, you know, 2000 students. And they say, okay, well, the current make, you know, looks like we actually dropped like 3% in African-American students this year from last year. And you've got that, you know, this pool of like, you know, a thousand students that you're like, oh, they're on the fence. So you got 500 slots left. Okay. Well, we dropped an African-American recognizing that there's different conditions that you live with growing up, recognizing that there's different interactions that you have with this country growing up. Mm -hmm. um, let's, you know take a look and maybe, you know, get, add some, add a point to them. Um, it, so it, it was really made so that it wasn't denying people a spot based on their race. It wasn't taking a point away, but it was recognizing that we need a diverse student body for people to be prepared to enter the real world and to try and make the college campus reflective of America. And as you said, it, it you saw a drop off when, when that wasn't being drop off of, of minority uh, marginalized uh, members when, when it wasn't being considered. So uh, it just seems like you want to have the, the faith in, in the, the highest court in the land, but a lot of, a lot of rulings uh, against the most marginalized of our, of our society. Um, speaking with Nicholas Ramirez of the legal aid bureau of Buffalo, talking some Supreme court rulings and the ramifications of it. Now we, we see this, as you mentioned, it, it can be affirmative action was being employed in, in multiple uh, areas. But how would this or how could this ruling affect employers or DEI initiatives? That's been that's been a, a, a term that that everyone's been harping on because one way or another. But how could this go into that into that uh, private into the private sector? I know that American Airlines, uh, Match Group, Google, I think Dell also. They warned in a brief to the Supreme Court that without affirmative action, they're they're going to lose access to 
to a number of future workers and and and, and business leaders and and they're going to struggle with meeting diversity hires but do you see some of that potentially uh, I definitely do I, I definitely think that with this kind of ruling so I've done some discrimination law cases um, and what I think we're going to see is any time a company has a commitment to DEI, um, you're going to have grounds for someone who doesn't get a job um, to go in and say, I didn't get it because I'm white. Um, and they have this DEI program, which shows that they favor black and Latino people because the court's stated goal here was that America needs to be colorblind. We can't pay attention to the fact that there's been less opportunities, less access to opportunities um, for, you know, people of color. We we can only think everyone has to have the have had the same, you know, treatment and we access. don't see color. Yeah. But in saying that, you're you're also not looking at the problems yeah. that that people of color. You're not engaging native, with reality. Heard, yep, yeah. yep. And I mean, that comes from the justices themselves, I think, having not had to engage with those things a lot. You know, they, they get to look at everything in this very abstract position of, you know, they remove the race from it and say, if this person gets it because their skin color is this color, but this person doesn't, then it's automatically racist when you need to include the color. You need to see that this black person getting, you know, this recognized as getting this additional point to get into these programs or get into this job. It's because you're recognizing that in general, there's a problem in our systems that they've never accounted for. It, it wasn't just you end slavery and boom, racism's over. You pass the Equal Rights Act, boom, racism's over. Uh, you know, marching across the Edmund Street Bridge, boom, racism's over. It doesn't work that way. People are still treated differently, and they just have this more subtle way that they do it sometimes. Maybe sometimes not even that subtle, to be honest. Um, and I'll give you an example. I'm, I was in the public defender unit, primarily serving east side and west side of Buffalo, which are primarily black and Latino. We had three people of color in that unit. Me, um, an amazing public defender named Mingo, Michael Mingo, uh, who did the Benoia Rights panel with me, and another incredible public defender, uh, Moody, who uh, was with us every step of that way. Uh, I just want to make sure I put some respect on their names because the two of them are both amazing individuals. Proper shout outs there. Yeah. But there's over, I think, over 20 attorneys in that unit. Um, and in general, in the law, you know, Latinos like you and me, we're, we're 5% of it. Black people are 5 to 6% of it. You know, that, that right there should show you that well, our population difference. numbers are drastically different. Drastically different. The composition <laughs> yeah. of, a, or of the makeup of our society, our American society, is vastly different <laughs> in, in percentage points. Uh, we have a few more minutes here, Nick, but um, I just wanted to ask, like, where, where I mean, we're, the federal judge appointments that we had, the record-setting federal yes. judge appointments in the last few years by the, the Republican administration prior to, to this one, that's part of this right oh like yeah these cases are going to come up in more and more frequency because of these federal judges that seemingly i hate i don't want to i don't want to speculate like this but seemingly have conservative leanings and and are are trying to as we're already seeing uh clear the slate of 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 prior precedents that that were progressive in nature uh hmm. do you foresee more of this coming unfortunately uh unfortunately i do um don't get me wrong. I've 
there's a lot of conservative justices I've met, conservative attorneys I've met who actually have, you know, very, very strong approaches to uh, equality they're and fairness. Impartial. They're, they're impartial. great. The they're great people. Um, even when they're impartial, they'll recognize the realities mm-hmm. of, you know, life. Um, I think usually where we differ is on how you enforce those things. Um, but there are also some who are just willing to say, I have the power and I'm going to use it. And I mean, I also glossed over the, the EPA ruling that basically the, the federal wetlands uh, ruling, it was, was a close one. I think it was 5-4 vote mm-hmm. in that case that limited uh, government authority and, and uh, departmental uh, oversight. That one's going to be that one's going to also going to show some some we're going to have see some ramifications of that one for a while because basically uh, dulled the teeth of, of a lot of uh, government agencies if I'm not mistaken the there, EPA was the one in this one but yeah there's been a concerted effort to dull the teeth of the EPA and generally to to make agencies have less discretion which is alarming because the agencies have the expertise to make these determinations. And something that a court, a judge, doesn't have. Uh, I went through law school and I've got legal training. I don't know anything about environmental regulations. <laughs> um, I also don't know how to trace history to determine what the founders' original intents were. And I, you know, those aren't things that we're trained to do. And the fact that they are assuming that people are assuming now that judges have this knowledge from no experience in those fields um it, it's concerning but it's just going to require us to put more effort into fighting back well i for one i'm glad that you went through the legal training <laughs> that you do you did the the, the hard work and research uh, for these things because uh just preparing for the these types of i always i always uh, i hope that i i do this the subject uh matter uh proper justice it's not a legal pun there. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> uh, because I it, it's important, and we're gonna. I think a, f- a part of it is is being aware of what the law is, where it, how it's changing, how it's going to affect us. And I'm glad that there are individuals such as yourself that are doing that, and also doing that with uh, with the the outreach uh, programs that you have, the Know Your Rights panel. I wanted to give you some um, a minute or two here to, to to explain it, and how can people get uh, in contact with with the uh, Legal Aid Bureau to to learn a little bit more yeah um so know your rights panel we basically break it down for a layman because uh, these things are not written to be easily <laughs> read um we let you know what your rights are and how we can work with you to protect them um last one was criminal uh was interactions with law enforcement which i think we'll be doing again at some point but this week uh the sixth at the frankie merriweather library we'll be talking about uh your rights as a tenant in housing uh, we'll also have attorneys there to provide advice and counsel, and uh, we'll have a lot of those coming up. Got one on suspension, school suspensions. That's also that's in the early works. stages, but yeah, that's gonna be coming up too. A lot of a lot of good stuff that you are imparting on on the uh, the the layman populace of, of Buffalo. <laughs> so I, I thank you for that, uh, Nicholas Ramirez, attorney, civil rights uh, and civil reentry attorney with Legal Aid Bureau of Buffalo. Thank you so much for educating us, for teaching us a little bit something here today. Hopefully we can have you again continue this conversation. But thank you, Nick. Thank you. And you have been listening to Buffalo What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, W-O-L-N-O-L-E-N, 
and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.